And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. How many of you, uh, let's see your hands and don't be shy, have suffered? Yeah, if you're breathing, uh, if you haven't gone through su- suffering yet, uh, it's coming. Okay, it's a part of us being in this fallen world. Anyway, I'm going to be reading today from verses, uh, let me think, 18 through 25. So if you would, just stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word, if you're able. And we're going to read uh, Romans 8, beginning at verse 18. And here's, here's what Paul writes. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience." Let's go to the Lord. Father, we're grateful for Your love for us. We thank You for the gift of Your Word and what a treasure it is. And so, God, I just pray that You would speak to our hearts this morning. Uh, we all go through suffering at various times and in various ways, so we prepare, ask that You would prepare our hearts now just by Your Holy Spirit to receive this message, to understand, yes, we saw last week that suffering is the path to glory, uh, but, Father, it is common to us. And so, uh, God, uh, help us to see what this text tells us, uh, how we can endure present suffering. So, Father, do it uh, for Your honor and for Your glory, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you may be seated. Now, I'll just tell you, for those that came to last Sunday nights, we were doing a sermon, Take Two, and so we were talking about suffering, and we had just an incredible time talking about suffering. We covered uh, some deep theological waters concerning suffering because you can't escape it. it. It's in the Bible and it's in our lives. So we, 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 you know, the best thing to do is have a biblical perspective of it. But we talked, uh, I kind of just, you know, last week went through everything I could. And so this week is on suffering again. And so I told the Wednesday night crowd, we had a few there that were there last Sunday night, we're not going to talk about suffering tonight. We're going to be talking about, is the Bible reliable? Is the, that's, the number one, that's the number one argument against Christianity today. That the book that we base our beliefs on is not reliable. Uh, it's, it's, it's in academia, it's at the university level. It's, it's coming way below that these days. So we want to address that issue. Is, is the Bible, particularly the New Testament, is it reliable? Can we trust what it says? So that's what we're going to be covering tonight. Now, you ever heard anything like this, moms? Moms, mom, why are there mosquitoes that give people malaria? Why are there germs that make us sick? 
Uh, Mom, I saw on the news a bad flood that killed a lot of people. Why are there are floods and earthquakes and hurricanes and tornadoes? Why are there famines where people starve to death? Mom, why did my friend at school get cancer and die? Why did grandma get sick and die? Mom, why do people set off bombs to blow up other people? Why do people do bad things to hurt each other? Well, maybe your kids have asked you questions like that. You've probably, you know, wrestled with them yourself. Some become agnostics or atheists uh, simply because they cannot come up with satisfactory answers to the question of how a loving, all-powerful God could allow such terrible suffering in this world. Now, since none of us are exempt from suffering and death, it's important that we understand what the Bible teaches on this difficult topic. Philosophers, theologians, pastors, and others have written literally hundreds of books on this topic. And some of these books are helpful, some are heretical. The book of Job, which would, you know, we think is probably the oldest book in the Bible, that's its main focus. It's devoted to this problem. Well, in our text, Paul gives part of the biblical perspective that we need to persevere through suffering that we surely will encounter. It's not comprehensive, but it is helpful, it's practical, if you will struggle to understand and practice what Paul teaches us here. Now, he's saying, here's the main point, to persevere in present suffering with hope. Keep your eyes on the future glory that God has promised us. Now, maybe right off the bat you're thinking, that just sounds like pie in the sky when you die. Well, it's kind of true. Yes, you are going to die. Would you like pie with that or no pie? The statistics, they're not fuzzy. We are all going to die unless Jesus comes again in our lifetimes. Now, materialists, they argue that when you die, uh, that's it. Your body decomposes, your soul ceases to exist, just like an animal. And Paul, he deals with that mistaken view in his defense of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. He says that if the dead are not raised, then go ahead and eat and drink, because tomorrow you may die. But if Jesus was raised from the dead, then the dead will be raised. Not just Jesus, but all those who have died in Him. And if the dead are raised, then we should be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now in our text, Paul wants us to understand two certainties and a practical conclusion that flows from them. First, the present time... What we're in now is marked by sufferings because of man's fall into sin. Second, the future will be marked by glory for believers as God fulfills all of His promises to us. And the practical conclusion is, if we keep our eyes on that future promised glory, then we can endure present sufferings with perseverance and hope. So number one, the present time is marked by suffering because of man's fall into sin. Paul mentions the sufferings of this present time, and he's not referring to a particular difficult period in history, but to the entire present age. 
The whole history of creation since the fall is marked by suffering. The history of nations is marked by uh, struggles and catastrophes, wars, natural disasters, internal conflicts, power struggles, crime. The history of individuals is also in large part a history of trials. Just think about it. You've been through these, the trials of growing up, of figuring out what to do with your life, who you're going to marry, how you're going to raise your children, working through struggles in your marriage, how you're going to support your family, growing old and facing declining health and even death. But why? Why do we suffer? How should we as Christians think about these difficult matters? Observations concerning this. A, the whole creation suffers because of, falls, uh, because of man's fall into sin. This is verses 19 through 22. Paul says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, which is God, in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now that's talking just about creation. Paul personifies creation groaning as it anxiously awaits the, the culmination of the salvation of God's people. Paul knows that that will trigger the release from corruption to which all creation has been subject since Adam and Eve first fell into sin. At that time, God's judgment on Adam included a judgment on creation. You may remember back in chapter 3 of Genesis, God said to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it will grow for you. You don't believe that? Go look at my yard. I promise you there is ten times more weed right now than there is grass. That's part of the curse. Now, not only the botanical world but also the animal world. It came under the curse as well. Now, Isaiah uh, chapter 11, verses 6 through 9, gives us a vision of something that we have never experienced. Listen to this. He says, And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of a cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand in the viper's den. How many like snakes? Terry, you're not, you can't answer that. They will not hurt or destroy, destroy in all of my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters covers the sea. Isaiah pictures in poetic language a vision of a restored creation where there won't be any violence, there won't be any death. Now, we've all watched spectacular footage in slow motion, probably, of a killer whale coming up and grabbing a seal in its mouth and then going back under to devour its supper. 
Or maybe you've seen a pride of lions bring down an elephant for their next meal. Such scenes portray this as the natural order of the world, in which the fittest survive by preying on the weaker species. But the Bible teaches that this is not natural. Violence and death, even in the animal kingdom, are the result of the curse on man's sin. Death was not a part of the original creation, which God, if you remember, pronounced as good. And in the future, when believers receive the full redemption that has been promised in Christ, all of creation will be restored at least to its original state, if not to an even greater level of glory. Now, two observations here before we move on. First, this text assumes that God is the creator of all that is. It didn't evolve by chance or random mutations over billions of years. Right out of the starting gate, uh, the Bible presents God as a creator. Genesis 1.1. You can't get further back than that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't put it up for debate or discussion. It hits you right between the eyes with the fact that God miraculously created all that is by the word of His power. I'm going to read you three verses from Psalm 33. Now, verse 6, it says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their hosts. Here's verse 9. For He spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Now, that's describing a sovereign God, our Creator, But tucked in the middle there, the the psalmist has a practical application. In verse 8, he says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. That all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. God alone is the rightful Lord of creation and the Lord of your life. He created you. Now, the fact of creation should make you bow in wonder and worship before Him. Second thing you want to see here is that even though the creation is falling, is fallen, it still bears witness to the majesty and the glory of the Creator. David marveled uh, in Psalm 19.1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the stars proclaim His handiwork. I remember those nights in Togo, Africa. There was no electricity for a hundred miles in any, any direction, so you didn't have any light pollution whatsoever. And we often saw what David must have seen in those dark Judean skies. The Milky Way stretching across the uh, southern hemisphere there. The constellations from trillions of miles away shining their light on us. It makes you feel properly small and God properly big. We've all seen stunningly gorgeous uh, sunsets here on the various coasts of Florida. But sadly, not many people who are admiring those sunsets even give a passing thought toward the greatness and the glory of the Creator who created those sunsets for us. But those of us who know Him should revel in His creation. I will tell you this. Uh, I don't know his name. Uh, he, oh, oh, Wang, W-A-N-G. Uh, he was the hospitalist for ICU, not the hospital, well, he was a hospitalist, but he was the ICU doctor uh, in the night. 
And he was fixing to get off, but I got in there early enough. He came in, and he's very likable. He comes in, he'll answer all your questions, talk to you, and what have you. And he was explaining the situation with my sister and the fact that she has multiple systems. And he said it's a very fine balance, right? You fix this, and it messes up this, and you know what I'm talking about. But he says the human body is the most exquisite machine on planet Earth. And I said, I said I'm a Christian. I believe that God made us and that He's intimately involved in our making. And yes, you are right. It is the <laughs> it is the ultimate in creation. And I think He did that because he, were, he knew that we were going to be His image bearer. And so He made us incredibly well. I'm just throwing that in there. I just happened to think of that. We should revel in His creation. If the fallen creation is this beautiful... Just think how spectacular the new heavens and the new earth will be. So the first observation from these verses is that all creation suffers because of man's fall into sin. It's presently enslaved to corruption and death. But also, B, all believers suffer because of man's fall into sin. This needs to be stated because, as I said a couple of weeks ago, there is a pervasive false teaching in our culture today that says that God wants every Christian to be healthy and wealthy. They say if you're sick or, or poor, then you need to claim your healing or your wealth by faith. Now those who teach these lies, they are simply preying on people's greed and their natural longing to be in good health. Have you ever noticed that not one of these false teachers lives to be 120? They all die from the same things in about the same time that we all die. Do not follow their teaching. Paul himself suffered terribly. When he got saved, if you'll remember, it was there in Damascus, the Lord sent Ananias to kind of remove, to pray for uh, Saul, Paul, so that the scales would come off his eyes and he'd be able to see again. But here's what he told Ananias, For I will show him, Paul, how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And man, in first, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talks about the things that he suffered. These are trials which would have driven most of us to absolute despair. Our Lord Himself was a, man, was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He came to this world of suffering to bear our sins through His own suffering and death. So why should we think that somehow we will be exempt from suffering? Now, in the sovereign purposes of God, which... I would never try to explain. Some suffer more and some suffer less. But none are exempt. It's, part of, uh, it's a part of living in this fallen world. Now this leads to a third observation here. See, we need to think biblically about suffering so that we will grow through it rather than being destroyed by it. Uh, note Paul's opening phrase in verse 18, for I consider. That word consider, uh, that's a good choice of, of translation. It means to reckon, to think about, to consider or ponder. In other words, this paragraph is the result of Paul's careful biblical thinking about suffering. And it's important to think biblically about suffering because 
It, when it clobbers you or those you love, you are likely to be flooded with a wave of powerful emotions. And I'm not suggesting that you should suppress or deny your emotions. But I am, am saying that you need to process them through the grid of biblical truth so that you're not devastated by your trials. Peter says that it's especially in the time of trials that the devil prowls around uh, seeking, um, like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But we must resist him by being firm in our faith and by understanding the biblical perspective on trials. Paul addresses something in 1 Thessalonians 4, and he doesn't deny that believers grieve when they lose loved ones. But... He does say that in light of the promise of the Lord's coming and the resurrection of our own bodies, we should not grieve as those, as do the rest, who have no hope. He's talking about the world. Now, the Bible gives us far more perspective on suffering than I can uh, comment on here. Uh, just don't have the time. Read God's Word. As you do, ask God to instill His wisdom in your heart for how to handle suffering. But from our text, Paul wants us to think about four things, and he's mentioned them. First, our present sufferings are relatively short compared to the eternal sharing in the glory of God. Second, the weight of our you know, current trials is like a feather on the scale compared to the tons of gold of glory that is going to be revealed to us. He expresses this same thought over in uh, 2 Corinthians 4. He says, therefore, and I, and I read this last week, but it, it's appropriate. Just listen. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For, because, momentary, <laughs> light affliction... That's what He calls your trials. Momentary. They're not forever. And they're light. In light of what you're going to receive in eternity. For momentary, light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen. Why? He tells us. For the things that are seen are temporary. But the things that are not seen are eternal. A third thing to think about to endure present temporary suffering is that our future glory with God is absolutely certain. God has promised it, and He cannot lie. Christ return, uh, promised to return in power and glory and bring final redemption to His people and, and to judge His enemies. Either He was mistaken or it is our certain future. And then a little bit later, we have a, a fourth thing that Paul, us, Paul tells us here that will help us think biblically about suffering, namely that God is using it, and I talked about this last week, He's using it to conform us to the image of Christ. Well, the fourth observation going back to the text is this. D, the, the fact of suffering does not undermine the fact that God has a plan and that He will accomplish His plan. Now, often people observe the terrible suffering in the world 
and they doubt God's love or they doubt God's power. The argument is especially emotional when we consider little children. Right? You just saw Emery up here. I mean, she's just stolen my heart and I only see her once a week. Um, we ask, how could little ch children suffer physical or sexual abuse or the horrible effects of war or natural disasters? We think it's one thing if wicked people suffer such things, but how could a God of love and power allow these precious little children to suffer such things? Paul shows that such things, they stem directly from man's fall into sin. All the way back to chapter 5. When Adam sinned, the whole human race sinned in him. Now, if you say that's not fair, you're on dangerous ground accusing the sovereign God of being unfair. And you're arrogantly implying that you would have done better than Adam did, so you're, you shouldn't have to, you don't deserve to be penalized for his sin. Now, you'd best not accuse uh, God of being unfair for imposing suffering on the human race because of sin. John Piper points out that if you think that somehow the suffering in the world is out of proportion to what is deserved, in other words, you're getting worse than what you actually deserve, he says, then you do not grasp the infinite holiness of God or the unspeakable outrage of sin against this holy God. God's judgment on the entire creation as seen in all of history's horrible tragedies reveals how horrific our sin is to Him. And Piper adds, But in fact, the point of our miseries, our futility, our uh, corruption, our groaning is to teach us the horror of sin and the preciousness of redemption and hope. End quote. Thank God he, he sent the Savior. But the fact of terrible suffering does not undermine the fact that God has a plan and that He is going to accomplish His plan. Paul says that creation was subjected to futility. This is verse 20. He also uses the analogy of birth pains in verse 22. The outcome of birth pains is what? The expectation of new life. And even so, God is moving history toward a goal that includes our future glory. And that leads us to our second thought here. The future will be marked by glory for believers as God fulfills all that He has promised us. I really can't elaborate this due to time constraints, but I want to include this in the message simply to convey Paul's flow of thought. God's final purpose, both for fallen creation and for His adopted children, is the glory of complete salvation. Four things about this glory. A, the future glory is not totally revealed to us yet, but it includes the revealing of all that God has promised us. J.B. Phillips, he has a paraphrase of the New Testament. I, I recommend it. Uh, he says of verse 19, here's his paraphrase, the whole creation is on tippy toes to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. 
It's the groaning. It's the, the anxiousness of creation waiting for the redemption of the sons of God. Why? Because when they get redeemed, creation is getting redeemed as well. In Colossians 3, 4, Paul says, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. 2 Thessalonians 2.14, Paul says, It was for this that He called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now glory, that's a hard concept to wrap our brain around. But it includes all of God's promises to bestow on us the unfathomable riches of Christ. Streets of gold, gates of pearl, mansions being prepared for us. Those are just limited analogies that say you can't imagine how wonderful it will be. Well, B, the future glory includes the full renewal of creation to its original perfection and purpose. The new heavens and the new earth, they're going to be even more glorious than the Garden of Eden was. With new glorified bodies, we will live on a new earth and enjoy God's creation as it was before sin ever entered this world. We'll see the future glory includes our freedom from sin and its corruption, including the full redemptions of our bodies. That's what my sister is looking forward to. That's okay, what I'm looking forward to. I wake up every morning, my, my bones are achy, and I have to stretch before I do anything. Right? We long for this. Now, freedom of the glory of the children of God, in verse 21, means at the very least, freedom from sin. Now, we enjoy the privileges of being God's adopted children right now, but we haven't yet come into our full inheritance, which includes the redemption of our body. Now, by God's Spirit, we are able not to sin. But do you realize that in glory, we will not even be able to sin? Oh, what a day. Well, D, the future glory is guaranteed by our present possession of the Holy Spirit, the first fruits, Paul calls them, of our redemption. The indwelling Holy Spirit gives us a taste of what it will like of what it'll be like to be holy, as Jesus is holy. But we're still living, living in these fallen bodies that are prone to sin and temptation with all of its terrible consequences. But the Holy Spirit is the promise that God will not abandon us to our sin. He's the down payment that signals that God will complete the transaction. Now, the practical conclusion follows, number three, keep your eyes on the future promised glory and you will persevere in your present sufferings with hope. Paul anticipates us thinking, but I can't see the future glory. Well, of course you can't. That's why it's hope. If you can see it, then it's not hope. Our our salvation includes hope because we don't receive it all in this life. Now, the hope of our salvation uh, is not uncertain as when I say, I hope it doesn't rain on our picnic tomorrow. Rather, it is absolutely certain because of God's promises who cannot lie. But we hope for it simply because we have not yet received all that has been promised. So Paul concludes there in verse 25, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. 
The key to persevering and suffering with hope is to keep your eyes on the promised future glory. Have you ever watched your favorite football team, let's say in the Super Bowl, and you're anxious as the game is going, especially if it's close? Uh, If your team fumbles or threw an interception, uh, you groaned because you didn't know the outcome. You hoped they would win, but your hope was really uncertain. Maybe you even got depressed if they fell really far behind. But if your team came from behind and won in the last seconds of the game, you're excited. And then later you watch a replay of the game. Your whole attitude was different. Now, you don't despair when they fumble or when they throw that interception or when they fall behind because you know how it will turn out in the end. Knowing the certainty of the future glory gave you hope to persevere through the setbacks. If we become anxious or depressed in trials and lose hope, it's because we've forgotten the absolutely certain outcome. And that outcome is future glory forever with Christ. Yes, there is present suffering because we live in a fallen world. But God has promised future glory. Keeping that in view will enable you to persevere any suffering with hope. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do long and we hope for that glory that will be revealed in us one day. Uh, Father, when the sons uh, of, of, of God are, are fully redeemed and this creation is restored, uh, Father, we look forward to that. But in our reality right now, we still suffer. So I pray that you would use this vision of what lies ahead. Help us understand, Paul says we're not to set our things uh, on, on the things that are visible, that you can see, because they're simply temporary Father, our our struggles are temporary in the long run, and they are light, according to Paul, uh, when compared to the glory that will be revealed one day. So, Father, help us to understand that vision of glory, and that's where we're headed. And may that give us strength as we endure trials here on this earth. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, if you uh, don't know Jesus Christ, if you're not... I said that, uh, you know, as sons of God, that we participate... Uh, we have benefits being adopted into God's family. Maybe you're not there. Maybe the stuff I'm talking about is just really foreign to you and you don't understand what I'm talking about. Maybe you don't know God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the only way you can know God. Now, you can come to know Jesus in a bunch of ways. You can re- read about Him. You can hear about Him. You can hear a song about Him that, can do, that God can use to do something in your heart. But Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to God but through Him. So today, if you do not know God through His Son, Jesus Christ, that's the beginning of everything. That begins your adoption into the family. It's a very simple process. Uh, Ask God to forgive you of your sins. He's the one that you have offended. That sin has caused a separation between you and Him. Only one thing will bridge that gap. And that's His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came to the earth nearly 2,000 years ago now. And he, he lived a sinless life. He was a perfect sacrifice. He died on the cross so that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Ask God to forgive you of your sins. Repent of your sins. Turn from them. 
and trust Christ and what He did on the cross 2,000 years ago. It's not difficult. If you're struggling in that arena, please, please come talk to me. Okay. If you're a believer, again, I know you're struggling. And, and we all have various levels. How many are struggling with only one thing? Yeah. You know what I mean. Yeah, we, we got struggles. All right. And God will give us the strength to get through them, but one of the things that He has given us is knowledge of the future. It's like knowing we, we have we, we know the end of the book. We know how it ends. So regardless of what going is going on right now in your life that has you tangled up in knots, that has your body tangled up in knots, guess what? It's not bigger than God. Continue to walk with God even in the struggles and remember what lies ahead. Count on that. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.